0: Well, hello folks. Good morning. Welcome to the Fellowship. I wasn't sure how long that video was, so I didn't know when to start my recording. Um, sorry, bear with me. I have to get everything set up here. We're gonna be in Joel this morning, and so I wanted a bigger screen than my little phone for my notes and everything. Um, but yeah, so this morning we're starting a study through the Minor Prophets. Uh, These books aren't called minor prophets because they're less important than other prophets. Um, They're not minor prophets because they can't buy beer yet. Um, They're called minor prophets because of their length. uh, They're shorter books with as many as 14 chapters but as few as one. So um, we're just going to look at a few of the different minor prophets. Um, And so this morning we're going to start with the book of Joel. It's only three chapters, and uh, to be full full disclosure, quite transparent here, um, that's the exact reason I selected it. When you start with the Minor Prophets, the Minor Prophets start with Daniel, and Daniel and Hosea both have like 12 and 14 chapters, and Joel's the next book, and it has three. So seemed like a good idea to me. Um, so Daniel, you know, going through the different Minor Prophets all the way to the end of the Old Testament, they end with Malachi, The Italian prophet. Maybe you've heard it pronounced Malachi. I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, so Joel is the first of the shorter of the minor prophets. So minor prophets are shorter books, and then Joel is the first of the shortest books. So I thought it was a good place to start. Um, And then in preparing for the sermon throughout the week, I thought, man, this is actually a really good book to get into right after the book of Philippians. You wouldn't think necessarily face value, but um, but it is. So when I, when studying the prophets, I heard the prophets are like looking at a mountain range. When you look at a mountain range, you think, Well, wow, those mountains are really close together. But then the closer you get there, there's great distance between the two. So um, specifically, like with Joel here, as we'll see, he'll be talking about something that's present time for him. And then the very next verse, he's talking about something else that's a great distance away. And so that's a good sort of picture to have when studying the prophets. Um, it can be very confusing. Uh, maybe after this morning you'll be completely confused. We'll see. Um, but I think if we have a little bit more insight into the book of Joel than when we walk through the doors this morning, then I think we'll be better off. So Joel 1.1 says, This is the Lord's message that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So first of all, Joel, his name means whose God is Yahweh, or or Yahweh is God, or the Lord is God. Uh, Yahweh uh, is what theologians call the tetragrammaton. I'm sure you're all very familiar with that phrase. Um, This is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Um, So just to give you significance there, uh, Hebrew words are two and three letters, two and three consonants. So um, Yahweh is four letters, hence tetragrammaton. Think like Tetris. You know arranging the four different shaped blocks and as they fall I'm sure we've all played that but um, hebrew words are consonants and there's not any vowels in the original language they were added in later around 600 a.d we have the vowel points that were added in so for the name of god we have yahweh um, it's the name that god gives for himself when moses asked who should i say sent me god answers him and says tell them Yahweh sent you or tell them that I am sent you Um, it's the verb to be so perhaps we're familiar with the eight I am statements in uh, the gospel of John I'm the bread of the life I'm the light of the world I'm the door I'm the good shepherd I'm the resurrection and the life I'm the way the truth and the life I'm the true vine and then uh, and I love I think it's a I think it's John chapter 8 um, but Jesus goes on this long thing, this long sort of a sermon, but it's an explanation to the scribes and Pharisees. And then at the end of it, he talks about before Abraham was, I am. And that he's talking about himself. And they take that as like, a, oh, you're claiming deity. We're going we're gonna to get you for it. So they want to rise up against him right then. So in a Jewish context, the name of God is not to be pronounced. It's a great, uh, they have a great reverence for it, as there should be. But also because the aforementioned lack of vowels, they lost how to pronounce Yahweh. They lost how to say it. Um, and so just as, as they, I guess as you know, their tradition went down, because you know, not all of scripture was written down right away. And so it started getting, as it started getting written down and then they lost how to pronounce it just from it being in text. And so they added different substitutes or pseudonyms for the tetragrammaton. And we see that in scripture. We'll look at it in a second. Like Adonai is most common. They would just, when when the name Yahweh would come up in scripture, they would say Adonai, which translates the Lord. Or sometimes they would say Elohim, which translates God. Or even, uh, not as common, but they would say Hashem, which translates the name. Uh, In fact, there's, well... We're not getting into that. don't have time. But, so the idea is they didn't want to mispronounce the name of God uh, because they didn't want God to show up and deal with them accordingly because they've mispronounced his name. And then, on the flip side, they didn't want to mispronounce, they didn't want to say God's name correctly, rather, um, in that he might show up and deal with them according to that either. So, they would just substitute Adonai, Elohim, Hashem, and so in Scripture, we see that. It's, it's there for us in Scripture. Joel 1.1, 1, 1 it says, This is the Lord's message that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So the Lord is, if you notice in your text um, or here, the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, generally, the O, R, D is a little bit smaller than the L. But when you see that, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know that is Yahweh. That is God's name there. Um, I'll try to find the the closest passage I can find to this is a few pages back if you want to flip. Hosea chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, um, we see the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt by a prophet. The Lord there being capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Brought Israel out of Egypt by a prophet, and due to a prophet, Israel was preserved alive. But Ephraim bitterly provoked him to anger, so we will... Hold him accountable for the blood he has shed. His Lord will repay him for the contempt he has shown, and that's that's actually translates adonai there. The Lord there in verse 13 translates adonai. It, it is actually the word adonai in the scripture, versus Yahweh. So when you're seeing scripture, studying scripture, and you see that, you know the difference between what words are actually being used here. I think that's a you know we don't always have you know original language things in our text, but that's a, that's a good one, because that's obviously an important one. So, With Joel, we don't know much about Joel. Um, he's not, he doesn't talk about himself much in this, well, at all, really. He puts himself into the book at one point, we'll see. But he doesn't talk about himself much, so we don't have that information. Um, because the book isn't about Joel, it's about his God, right? So, and then other biblical authors don't really talk about Joel either. They don't say, Joel did this, and Joel talked about this, and Joel lived during this time. We don't know any of that. They reference Joel. uh, Peter quotes him in Acts chapter 2, but we don't know anything about his lineage or his history or anything else like that. And it says he's the son of Pethuel. Well, guess what? We don't know anything about Pethuel either. Mm -hmm. So we really don't know much about this prophet Joel. Um, There's only what's mentioned here in Scripture. We know that he is the Lord's messenger. The Lord, this is the Lord's message that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So, what is the message of Joel? What is the Lord's message he's sharing through Joel here? Well, it's about judgment and salvation. Another theme in the book is the Day of the Lord. Now, the Day of the Lord could be an entire sermon in and of itself. It, that's that's uh, I mean, that could be a multi-week study, really. But um, brief overview of the Day of the Lord. It's when God breaks into his creation for a time of judgment. So, Joel refers to a present day of the Lord in his time. He refers to a future day of the Lord in another time. And then a final eschatological or end times day of the Lord that happens in the future. So, um, yeah, so that's what he talked about. So, the day of the Lord. Is both a day of judgment, but it's also a day of salvation. In chapter one, it's a day of judgment with a locust. We'll get into that shortly, but basically, a locust is a type of grasshopper. There's a couple videos we'll look at here. So, the locust is a type of grasshopper. In certain conditions, usually following a drought, locusts can swarm and cause massive devastation, right? Uh, We see. We'll see exactly how devastating the swarm of locusts can be when we get in the text. But uh, this wasn't the first time God used the locust as a judgment. Uh, remember Exodus, one of the ten plagues as they were leaving Egypt, um, was a swarm of locusts, a plague of locusts. Um, there's this video. There's another video. One, one of these videos is from Kazakhstan. I'm not sure which one. And one is from Russia. Probably speak the same language. I'm very ignorant on those languages, but... Either way, we'll see the next one and you you can hear how deafening these swarms of locusts can be. They start pelting the windshield. It's awful. I mean, that's just insane. So, uh, I mean, this is a huge swarm, but can you imagine a swarm, as Joel says, that is described as without number? So I, I picture a much bigger swarm than that. And you remember uh, John the Baptist ate locusts. I'm sure he probably got the troll cooked from Lonesome Dove to fry them up for him. You know, probably not nice and good. Or <laughs> I wish Glenn was here. I was going to make a joke about Glenn's ancestors, you know, boiling them up in some Cajun spices for him. I'm sure they would love to eat that, but... I don't wanna eat locusts or grasshoppers or anything else like that. Um, But so Joel one has this judgment with locusts. Uh, Chapter two, there's a threat of a warning of an army invasion. So Joel one, these locusts have come, it's happened. Joel two, this this, uh, army is coming. Um, It's described as an unstoppable army. And then in chapter three, there's the final judgment, final judgment of God's enemies and a final vindication of God's people. So chapter 1, immediate judgment, locus. Chapter 2, imminent judgment, an army. And then chapter 3, final judgment or ultimate judgment. One more thing about the day of the Lord is the day when judgment is poured out on sinners. That's generally an eschatological or end times reference. Um, but there's also a temporal aspect to it as well, like something that's more immediate. Um The Day of the Lord carries this idea of like a military leader. In the Middle East, there's this concept that the Day of the Lord was when a particular commander, when that particular commander arrived at battle, the battle was over in a day, if you can imagine. And I've been racking my brain all week trying to think. I know I've seen like a movie clip where there's this battle going on. I don't know if it's a Marvel movie or Lord of the Rings or something, but there's a battle going on and, the people are fighting and it's like all just like the normal people are fighting and they're they're holding the enemy pretty good but you can tell the enemy's about to break through and destroy them all and then the bigger hero comes through and just it's almost like an instant I can't I want to maybe it's a matrix movie or x-men I don't know um, infinity wars probably I like that I was trying to think about this well I'm not getting into that but so I'm sure it's probably in several movies who knows uh, you can also think about the Day of the Lord from like an NFL perspective. Like Tom Brady's been the GOAT for years and years. And then Patrick Mahomes comes along, and a, just a few short years into his career, he wins the Super Bowl. You think, oh, now it's the Day of Mahomes, right? And then the next year, that, that illustration breaks down because the next year Tom Brady beat Mahomes in the Super Bowl, but whatever. But this is the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord in the New Testament becomes Christological, uh, meaning it's the day of Jesus Christ. So the uh, the goal is still for the people to reflect Yahweh's character so that the world that doesn't know Yahweh can come to know Him. Um, both Old Testament and New Testament, day of the Lord, involves faith and repentance. And um, with these three judgments that we talked about, there's also, we have these three salvations. So chapter 2, 18 through 27, there's an immediate salvation. That happens uh, for the people. Um, And then they're gathered back to their land. We call that a salvation in these days. So from Joel's perspective is what we're talking about, right? So the salvation in these days, Joel's days. And then in verses chapter 2, 28 through 32, there's a salvation in those days. So it's not a salvation in these days. I'm going to call it salvation in those days. And, And this is Peter's day. Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2. And on the day of Pentecost, so there's salvation in these days in Joel's day. There's as Joel looks forward, there's a sal- salvation in those days, which is salvation in Peter's days, which is our day as well. We still have that same salvation that Peter preached about. And then in the next chapter, chapter three, there's uh, you know those different mountain ranges that we're talking about, right? Um, So we have salvation in the final days, the last days. So judgment and salvation, two things go hand in hand. Um, As I'm thinking about that, through this theme of Joel, I can't help but think about total depravity. So total depravity is the theological argument, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Basically it's Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um But also, just prior to that, verses 10 through 18, uh, Romans 3:10 through 18, it says, "Just as is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. Their throats are open graves. They deceive with their tongues. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood." Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this text in Romans here is often referred to as the anatomy of a sinner. From head to toe, man is sinful. And that's us. We are totally depraved. Now the thing about being totally depraved is that doesn't mean that we are utterly depraved. There is still hope for us. There is still redemption for us. There is still the foreknowledge or foreloving of god that he elects and calls us and thus redeems us there's this quote from tim keller i like it says we are far worse than we ever imagined we ever imagined but we are also far more loved than we could ever dream we're far worse than we ever imagined but we are also far more loved than we could ever dream and we see that in the judgment of salvation spoken in the book of joel judgment is far worse than we ever imagined but the good news is salvation is far greater than we could ever drink. And so we're going to look at that in here. Uh, and I'll, we're, we'll read through and I'll comment. So verse 1, this is the Lord's message that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then we get into the plague of locusts. Verse 2 and 3 says, Listen to this, you elders, pay attention to all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your whole life or in the lifetime of your ancestors? Tell your children about it. Have your children tell their children and their children the following generation. So I remember growing up, um, hearing like older folks talk about the Dust Bowl. I remember the, that was like a big thing when I was a kid is like, oh, you remember the Dust Bowl? My grandma had lots of stories about the Dust Bowl, but there, I think there was a big one in 1930 and another one in 1940. But the thing about it is the Dust Bowl, my grandma was born in 1929. So maybe she remembers the one in 1940, but her stories of the Dust Bowl weren't really her stories. They were like her parents told her about it, or her older siblings told her what their experience were, and she was passing that on to us. And that's what's going on here. He's saying, first listen you elders, pay attention all you inhabitants. So he's like getting their attention, and he says, has anything like this ever happened? Talking about the locusts. Tell your children about it. Tell the other generations about it. Pass this on. And verse 4, full disclosure, uh, the New English translation that I use transliterates these different varieties of locusts. Um, the, the words are only used here, so there's not really a uh, clear understanding of what these words mean, but we do see that at least these locusts are coming in waves, the swarms of waves, the waves of swarms, I guess. So what this says is, what the gasm locusts left, the arbith locusts consumed, what the arbus locusts left, the yellow locust consumed, and what the yellow locust left, the hazel locusts have consumed. Um, other English or other translations, you know, give different words for what these could be. We'll look at the ESV and see what that says. It says, "What the cutting locust left, left the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten." So these locusts are causing utter destruction. And with the destruction caused by the locusts, Joel is telling the people to wake up. Wake up. This is what's happening. Verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Well, you all you wine drinkers, because the sweet wine has been taken away from you. So, their locusts are destroying their crops. They have nothing to make wine with, so the wine drinkers should cry out. And in verse 6, he says, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Joel likens this group of the swarm of locusts to a nation. He describes them further. He says, Their teeth are like lion's teeth. They have fangs of a lioness. They have destroyed my vines. They have turned my fig trees into mere splinters. They have completely stripped off the bark and thrown it aside. The twigs are stripped bare. And then he says, verse 8, Well, like a young virgin clothed clothed in sackcloth, lamenting the death of her husband to be so joel paints this picture of how one should mourn of like a young woman mourning the death of her betrothed um, i was going to throw up a manta teo picture and talk about how like mourn like he did his grandma died and then his fiance died and then 5 hours later he found out his fiance was he was just catfish he wasn't really dead and all that so for those 5 hours that manta teo mourned that's how we should be mourning right um, this is the picture Joel is painting for us here. In verse nine, says, "No one brings grain offerings or drink offering offerings to the temple of the Lord anymore." So, with no offering, with no, every, all their land is destroyed. There's no grain or wine to bring these offerings to the priests. There's no sacrifices. The priests can't pl- complete their duty. Verse ten: The crops and the fields have been destroyed. The ground in the morning is the ground is in mourning because the grain has perished. So it's not just the people but it's the land also right? Because of the sin of the people affects the land as well. Um, but don't fret along with this theology of how the sin of the people affects the land, there's also a theology of hope of new creation being of the, with the land being restored. Then verse 10 ends, the fresh wine is dried up, the olive oil languishes. So basically, their essentials are taken away. The essentials in this day, grain for bread, wine to drink, oil for lamps or beers or whatever you want to use oil for. um, All that is taken away. So in judgment, all the necessities, all the essentials are taken away. It says, verse 11 and 12, it says, Be distressed, farmers, well, vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley. For the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, date, and apple as well. In fact, all the trees of the field have dried up. Indeed, the joy of the people has dried up. So with the removal of all their stuff, all their essentials, their joy goes as well. What are they to do? The land has been devastated and their joy is dried up. So what are they to do? Joel tells them in verse 13 and 14. He says, Get dressed and lament, you priests. Well, you who minister at the altar, come, spend the night in sackcloth, you servants of my God, because no one brings grain offerings or drink offerings to the temple of your God anymore. And now this is where this is we're supposed to wail, well, we're supposed to lament and cry out, mourn in sackcloth. And then he says, verse 14: announce a holy fast, proclaim the sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the temple of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. So we're gonna we're gonna call out to the Lord. That's the thing we do. In times of distress and times of devastation, what we are to do is to call out to the Lord. He says to the to lament in sackcloth. They're to fast. There's an assembly in the temple, um, they're to call out to the Lord. So I remember and I think Steve brought this up Wednesday night, um, about September twelfth, two thousand one. Everybody went to the to the churches, right? There was a devastating thing happened, and then we gathered in the churches. We we gathered there. There was assembly there. And that's that's what that's exactly what Joel is telling them to do. Assemble. There's devastation. You need to go assemble. You need to be together. And then verse 15 says, How awful that day will be, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the divine destroyer. So <laughs> what? Like the, the judgment with the locust isn't bad enough. Joel is telling them that this future day of the Lord is going to be worse. Why? Because judgment is worse than you can ever imagine. Life is awful. It's going to get worse, Joel says. And that's the point. These little disasters is to wake them up to the fact that judgment is coming and it's far worse than we can ever imagine. Alright. Verse 16 through 18, we'll look at it real quick. Our food has been cut off right before our eyes. There is no longer any joy or gladness in the temple of our God. The grains of seed have shriveled beneath their shovels. Storehouses have been decimated. The granaries have been torn down because the grain is dried up. Listen to the cattle groan. The herds of livestock wander around in confusion because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Again, creation is suffering from the judgment of the sins of the people. And then in verse 19, you see, this is where Joel includes himself here. He says, To you, O Lord, I call out for help. For fire is burned up in the pastures of the wilderness. Flames have raised, have raised all the trees in the fields. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbed have, beds have dried up. Fire has destroyed the pastures of that wilderness. So even Joel is calling out. He says, To you, O Lord, I call out for help. So two things from chapter 1. One, we should call it to the Lord for help. And two, when you see a disaster, view it as a warning for a greater disaster that's to come. Right? Um, I know, especially like TV preachers, we see them a lot talking about these different disasters that we see happening around the world, and like, well, that's God's judgment for this, and that's God's judgment for that. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know. I can't. I can't speak for them, but. Um, I do know there is a greater there is a greater disaster coming. There's a greater judgment coming for sure, and that's going to be disastrous if you don't know the Lord. And so I can't help but think of like the devastation we've seen with the hurricane in Florida and everywhere else. All that devastation, um, whether that's a judgment on those people or not, I'm not saying that. But it's a good idea. It's a good picture for for us to see. Wow, that's a great disaster. And there's terrible tragedy there. But it pales in comparison to the final disaster that's to come. Um, And that's sort of a good picture to think about when we see those things. Um, Also remember, with the warning, there should also be a reminder that to come, there is a salvation of the Lord to come. There's a way out, and God has provided it. So the text here tells us to wake up to understand what happens if we don't call on the Lord to be saved. Um, The judgment in this disaster is terrible, but we should view it as mercy. right? I mean, just think about it. If you knew disaster was coming your way, wouldn't you do everything, take all the necessary steps to prepare for it or to avoid it? Wouldn't you heed the warning calls to flee? Wouldn't you board up your house and get out of town? Whatever it might be. Remember when Carol and I moved to Grand Cayman in 2017, we got to experience a little bit of the you know, semi-constant fear that the Islanders had for hurricanes. Um, there's one guy in particular, a guy named John, that was always tracking the weather. He would track it coming off the Horn of Africa because he said that's where they get their hurricanes from. And so he was always telling me, and I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything. You know, I was dumb. But he would tell me, hey, there's this weather system and everything, and I was like, Okay, do I need to go board up the house now? What's going on? And he's like, Oh no, 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 it's like a week away. You know, if it doesn't die out across the Atlantic, maybe we'll get some rain. But it's looking pretty strong. If it grows, then, you know, whatever. And this is this was his warning to us. So then I started realizing, oh, okay, so the warnings that they have for hurricanes are much different than the warnings we like we grew up with in East Texas for for tornadoes, right? Um, I remember in 2015 when the tornado hit Van or. You know, numerous stories from different people that were kind of along the pathway of the warning they received. I have some friends that um, they were just on the edge of it, and they didn't hear any sirens or anything, but their dogs were going crazy, and they stepped outside to see what was going on with their dogs, just to see the tornado pass by their house. It's like a couple hundred yards away. Like here to Berkshires, like Berkshires was wiped out, and they were here, right? It's just insane. Uh, another, some other friends that were actually in their path, and their house got destroyed. They got some kind of a warning just in time to grab their kids and hide in an inner closet. And then it, it blew over them and they were saved um, in the interior of their house, fortunately. But, I mean, very little warning. And so, here, with this final judgment, we have the word of the Lord through Joel giving us a warning system. He's telling us, he's like, we know it's coming, but God has provided a way out. God has provided salvation to all who repent and believe on Jesus. So Joel 2, we get into this imminent judgment. There's terrible destruction in chapter 1. Well, check out chapter 2. It's even worse. (laughs) Verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm signal on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land shake with fear, for the day of the Lord is about to come. Indeed, it is near. It will be a day of dreadful darkness, a day of foreboding storm clouds. Like blackness spread over the mountains, it is a huge and powerful army. There has never been anything like it before, and there will not be anything like it for many generations to come. So, what kind of disaster could this be? It says, verse three says, like a, like fire, they devour everything in their path. A flame blazes behind them. The lamb, the land looks like a gar- like, sorry, the land looks like the Garden of Eden before them. But behind them, there's only a desolate wilderness. So as this disaster that's coming through comes through, ahead of them, it's beautiful. It's pristine. It's the Garden of Eden. Coming behind them, it's just desolate. And this is happening after the locust, right? After the locusts ate everything that the other locusts left, that the other locust left, that the other locusts left. It's, it's coming. Of course, we know mountain ranges. This is a, a distant future judgment, right? Um... So uh let's see First two it says is a is a huge and powerful army there has never been anything like it before so i think this is a real army uh, some people view the locusts and the army as representative representative of you know other things representative of judgment to come uh, the the locust that had already happened it was a past event but this army, I do believe it's like a real army. And this army here in chapter 2 is something that has yet to come. And then, um, I mean, just thinking about this like army blowing through. We'll get into it more. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings for sure. And the destruction that's following is just a barren wasteland. And verse 4 it says, They look like horses. They charge ahead like war horses. They sound like chariots rumbling over mountaintops. Like the crackling of blazing fire consuming stubble. Like the noise of a mighty army being drawn up for battle. People writhe in fear when they see them. All their faces pale with fright. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. Each one proceeds on his course. They do not alter their path. They do not jostle one another. Each of them marches straight ahead. So they're, they're not distracted. They're, they're plunging through straight forward. It says They burst through the city defenses that do not break ranks. They rush into the city. They scale its walls. They climb up the houses. They go in through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them. The sky reverberates. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars refuse to shine. And then here's the most probably shocking thing. Check this out it's the Lord's army. Verse 11, the voice of the Lord thunders as he leads his army. So the Lord is leading this. This is this is something I think that's it's hard to conceive today. I think mean, most of us have this view of God where we take everything good and nice and sweet and we kind of clump it together and that's our view of God. Or that's some folks' view of God. Um, and God is certainly good, but that is not... A full biblical view of of who God is. The picture of God's goodness that Scripture gives is not always obvious to us of how God says, how the Bible says we should view God, or how what the Bible says, who the Bible says God is. I think we need to understand God's goodness from a heavenly perspective and not our humanly earthly perspective. Um, and also, it comes from this idea that like. A lot of people are worried about what's been done to us. What has God done to us versus um, what we've done against God, the sin we've committed against God. Uh, and I think if you consider everything that was lost in Joel chapter 1, Joel told the people to lament uh, because of what was lost. Or Sorry, not because of what was lost. They were to lament over their sin. It was their sin that was causing the judgment in the first place. So then we get verse 11. The voice of the Lord thunders as he leads his army. Indeed, his warriors are innumerable. Surely his command is carried out. Yes, the day of the Lord is awesome and very terrifying. Who can survive it? And the answer to that is nobody. Nobody can survive it. That's the point. It's unser- It's unsurvivable. Insur- I don't know what the word is, but nobody can survive it. In verse 12 it says, yet, yet even now, the Lord says, Return to me with all your heart, With fasting, weeping, and mourning, tear your hearts, not just your garments. So it's not just this outward religious expression. You know, we discussed this in Philippians. This is a matter of the heart. Tear your hearts, not just your outer garments. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and boundless and loyal love, often relenting from calamitous punishment. So... This is God's character, right? God's character is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, boundless and loyal love. If he is all these things, and these disasters have happened with the locusts and everything, how bad was their sin that the God, who is compassionate and slow to anger, went ahead and, and wiped out their land with the swarm of locusts? How bad was their sin? How bad is our sin? Is there a locust plague coming on our land soon? Verse fourteen says, "Who knows? Perhaps he will be compassionate and grant a reprieve, and leave blessing in his wake, a meal offering and a drink offering for you to offer to the Lord your God." So we're gonna here we're gonna jump down to chapter three and look at the final judgment in chapter three, um, and then we'll come back to this. Basically, what's going on? Verses fifteen through seventeen of chapter two. Uh, we actually see how the people are actually calling out to God. And then verses 18 through 27, uh, as we talked about at the top of the sermon, this is the Lord's response, the Lord restoring his people. And then, um, yeah. So so Joel's, you can look at Joel's being divided into two halves. Um, Joel 1, chapter 1, verse 2, through... The middle of chapter two, like verse seventeen, we have God's judgment on His people, and then two eighteen through three th- through chapter three, it's God's restoration of His repentant people and judgment on their oppressors. Okay, so this final judgment that we're going to look at chapter three is the judgment of their oppressors. Um, I don't know if your scripture has different um, like. What should be chapter four, as a, in a parentheses next to verse um, chapter three, verse one, or what? But um, different different versions give different, uh, I guess, paragraph breakdowns. You know, these these paragraphs and verse numbers were not in the original text, so it's just uh, how how people divide it up. So some people still offer some versions still offer those other suggestions. But anyway, three one. Let's look at it. Says. For look, in those days, and at that time, I will return the exiles to Judah and Jerusalem. Then I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So, this Valley of Jehoshaphat is not a... I don't believe it's a... There's a lot of speculation on, you know, is this an actual geographical location or not? Um, Jehoshaphat literally translates Yahweh judges. And so I think this is a play on words with King you know, with King Jehoshaphat, I don't think it's actual valley named after King Jehoshaphat or anything. Uh, Down in verse 14, we see there's the Valley of Decision or the Valley of Verdict. So that's why I don't think that it's an actual place, but it's more of a time when God will judge His people. So He's going to bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. says, I will enter into judgment against them there concerning my people Israel, who are my inheritance, whom they scattered among the nations. They partitioned my land, and they cast lots for my people. They traded a boy for a prostitute. They sold a little girl for wine so they could drink. Uh, so this is this is awful stuff happening, right? We don't want to think about how corrupt people have to be to do something like this, but um, they're just treating people like commodities in this in this way. It says, why are you doing these things to me, Tyre and Sidon? Are you trying to even get are you trying to get even with me, land of Philistia? If you are, I will very quickly repay you for what you have done. For you took my silver and gold and brought my and brought my precious valuables to your own palaces. You sold Judeans and Jerusalemites to the Greeks, removing them far from their own country. This is maybe a reference to the Babylonian captivity. Um, one thing, another thing we don't know about Joel is when Joel was written either. We we don't know. We don't have that. Um, People speculate anywhere from the 9th century to 4th century um, BC, but we don't know. And so it's hard to say yeah, maybe when in history these things are happening. Now, uh, verse 7 says, Look, I'm rousing them from that place to which you sold them. I will repay you for what you have done. So this we do, you know, I, I do think this probably has happened to some extent in history, or I guess we have partial evidence that this has happened in history. Artaxerxes captured Tyre, and then, uh, you know, years later, Alexander the Great took over Tyre, and then uh, the Persians from there, and then went on to conquer Sidon as well. So these things have been conquered by people, and I think probably the Lord was using that to you know, act judgment on those people. this way. And it says, verse 8, I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah. They will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. Indeed, the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for a holy war. Call out the warriors. Let all these fighting men approach and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Remember in Micah, you remember this, him talking about this, it was opposite. Michael was talking about peace. And he said, turn your swords into farming tools. Turn your swords into plows. But here the picture Joel gives is you need to prepare for battle. Take those farming tools and form them into weapons. And then of verse 10 it says, Let the weak say, I too am a warrior. Lend your aid and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves to that place. Bring down, O Lord, your warriors. Let the nations be roused and let them go up against, let them go up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit in judgment on the on all the surrounding nations. So there's this buildup. We're preparing for battle. We're beating our plowshares into swords. And uh, the, the weak are saying, I'm a warrior too. Or the weak saying, I am strong. Uh. And then it says, bring down, O Lord, your warriors. And then when they get there to the battle, we think they're coming to this great battle. And there's not a battle. It's just God sitting and judging. So there's no battle. It's God sitting and judging. They're going down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of God judges. And God God is sitting there and judges, Judging. Verse 13 says, Rush forth with the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and stomp the grapes, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, indeed, their evil is great. Crowds, what great crowds are in the valley of destruction, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So, I said destruction, but it's the valley of decision, not destruction. So, this is quite literally translates valley of verdict. So, it's saying there's no longer any time for human response. There's no longer time for that. The Lord will be making the decisions. The Lord will be sitting in judgment, making decisions. Um, so it's the, the time to respond, the, the time to heed the warning is now. Now is the time for repentance. And then verse 15, 16 says, The sun and moon are darkened, the stars withhold their righteousness. The Lord roars from Zion, from Jerusalem his voice bellows. The heavens and earth shake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. He is a stronghold for the citizens of Israel. So in his final judgment, you will either see the face of the Lord in judgment as he roars as a refuge, sorry, as he roars, or you'll see him as a refuge for salvation. So recap the Lord's judgment, chapter 1, 2, and 3, immediate, imminent, and final. God's using these things as a way to wake people up to the reality of a judgment. But here's the good news. Salvation. He offers salvation, and salvation is far greater than we ever dreamed. Similarly to the judgments, the salvation is also a these days salvation, a those days salvation, and then the final day. So we're going to jump back to chapter 2 and look at the salvation here in this, in this book. Uh, 215 through 32, he says, Blow the trumpet. Now the same phrase is used at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Blow the trumpet, that's in preparing for battle. Here he's saying blow the trumpet in a religious sense. It's a call together for the people to assemble to worship to the worship assembly. Now the interesting thing is the same trumpet can be used for both. Calling people to battle and calling people to worship. So it says um, Blow the trumpet, announce a holy fast, proclaim a sacred assembly, gather the people. Sorry say so, yeah gather the people sanctify an assembly gather the elders gather the children and the nursing infants let the bridegroom come out of his bedroom and the bride from her private quarters let the priest those who serve the word lord weep from the vestibule all the way back to the altar so we see the assembling and the fasting of the elders the children the nursing infants the bridegroom the bride the priests and there's fasting there's an assembly, there's worship with the priest returning to the altar to make sacrifices again. He's been lamenting, he's been crying in his vestibule, and he's returning to the altar to make these sacrifices again. So think about it for a moment. Verses 18 to 27 haven't happened. That's where the Lord is restoring all the things back to the people. The, the grain, the wine, all the things that they're going to need to worship hasn't been restored to them yet. But the priest is going back to the altar now to prepare for the worship. He's he's all he's going back to the altar to prepare for this. And then at the end of verse 17 it says, Let them say, Have pity, O Lord, on your people. Please do not turn over your inheritance to be mocked, to become a proverb among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples... Where is their God? So they're, they're crying out for mercy. They're asking God to be merciful to them. Have pity on us, He said. they say. In verse 18, says, Then the Lord became zealous for his land. This is his motivation here. This is the motivation of salvation. He, was, he became zealous for his land. He had compassion on his people. The Lord responded to his people. He says this, Look, I'm about to restore your grain as well as fresh wine and olive oil. You will be fully satisfied. We see this restoration of the the essentials, the necessities that that were lost, right? It says, I will never again make you an object of mockery among the nations. This is, uh, in this verse, uh, what is it? Verse 20. This is the favorite verse for us here in the South. It says, I will remove the one from the north far from you. I think this is just a reference to the Syrians and Babylonians coming from the north but I don't know we can put that on our coffee mug if we want uh, and it says I will drive him out of dry land I'll drive him out to a dry and desolate place those in front of those in front will be driven eastward into the Dead Sea those in back westward into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise up as a foul smell indeed the Lord has accomplished great things. Do not fear my land rejoice and be glad because the Lord has accomplished great things. Do not fear wild animals, for the pastures of the wilderness are again green with grass. Indeed, the tree bears fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield to the fullest. So the Lord has provided food for the animals, so the people aren't going to be a meal for them. And he's telling them again to rejoice and be glad. Remember, they lost their joy but he's restoring this, and so he's telling them to rejoice. It says again here, uh, let see, verse 3. It says, Indeed the tree bears fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield to their fullest. Citizens, verse 23, citizens of Zion rejoice. Be glad because of what the Lord your God has done. So we talked a lot about rejoicing in Philippians, right? Here Joel tells them to rejoice. He says, Be glad because of what the Lord your God has done. The joy had left them, but with the restoration through salvation... It is yet again time to be glad and rejoice. It says, for he, given you an early rain, for he has given you the early rains as vindication. He has sent you the rains, both the early and the late rains as formerly. So here in East Texas, you know, sometimes we go like 100 days without rain, and it's very terrible for us. We can't sit around our solar stoves in our backyard, or, you know, we're under burn bands and things. But in the Middle East, when they go without rain, it's much more devastating. Their climate, it's a lot more devastating for them to go without rain for sometimes years upon end. Um, And here the Lord is blessing them with rain. He's helping in the restoration of their land. After all the devastation from locusts and the army, he's giving them rain. Early rains and the regular rains, late rains. Verse 24 says, The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats overflow with fresh wine and olive oil. Restoration isn't something that is coming. It has arrived. The essentials have been restored. He says, verse 25, I will make up for the years that the Arbeth locusts can consume your crops, the yellow locusts, the Hazel locust, the gazam locust, my great army that I sent you. So when the locust swarms, there was years of devastation left in their wake, and God is making up for that. God is making up for those years. That's that's a good God. It says, you will have plenty to eat, and your hunger will be fully satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who is... Acted wondrously on your behalf. My people will never again be put to shame. You will be convinced that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people never again will be. My people will never again be put to shame. So, there's a lot of, you know, the already but not yet here in these verses. I believe we looked at that in Philippians too. We saw, you know, a glimpse of the you know, already happened but but not yet quite come about, right? And so God is restoring the years to them. I think, you know, perhaps maybe maybe you came to cross late late in life. I don't I don't know everyone's story, but maybe you came to cross late in life and you've always felt like you had a lot of catching up to do. Or maybe like many people you maybe had some rebellious years. You you had some, some years of struggling, a season of struggle if you will, where you wasted several years Um, But God's going to restore that to us. If not in this lifetime, in the new creation. He's going to restore those years to us. We'll have plenty to eat and be fully satisfied. If not in this lifetime, but in the new creation. So in this lifetime, we're probably going to be shamed. But in the new creation, there will be no shame. The outpouring of the Spirit here in these next verses. This is the text, verse 28 through the end of chapter 2. This is the text that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost um, he needs to preach a sermon and what text does he reach for? Joel chapter 2 I think it's because Peter understood this salvation that Joel talks about here he, he he got the mountain range illustration he understood this was his day this wasn't a salvation for Joel's day but Peter recognized oh this is the salvation happening in these in Peter's day and, and from Joel's perspective those days but for Peter it's his day Consequently, our day. So he says this. After all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Peter doesn't say after all this um, when he quotes it, because it was something that was happening now. It's for him. So he understands that it's a perspective for, for him on the day of Pentecost. It's not after all this, it was happening right then. This is what was happening. He says, uh, you know, so remember before the day of the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would, would, God would send His Spirit upon somebody, the Holy Spirit would come on that person and be with, dwell in that person for a season, for a time, for a task, an event, and then the Holy Spirit would would withdraw, would would leave that person. Um, and so, what Joel is saying here is God is going to pour out His Spirit on all people and will never leave them. Uh, Moses actually alludes this in uh, Romans eleven twenty nine. Says Moses said to him. Are you jealous for me? I wish that the Lord's people were all pro- I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all them so Moses hoped for this in, in numbers chapter 11. Joel talked about this is happening this is going to happen and then Peter preached it and he preached. the Holy Spirit came upon everyone 3,000 people were saved so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened first uh, back to Joel two twenty eight says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your elders will have problematic dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So we have the ages, the classes, the genders, all receiving the Spirit of the Lord. There's no discretion with God. And he says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Uh, Peter adds that in chapter in Acts chapter two, he adds, and they will prophesy, repeating it from verse twenty eight. He says, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So he viewed this prophecy with something that went hand in hand with God's Spirit coming upon the people. Now, prophecy has a lot of different aspects to it. It's, it's very, I do not say convoluted, but there's a lot to it. Um, simply put, prophecy means professing truth on God's behalf. So some of the some of the prophets of the Old Testament. And and even in the New Testament, see with you know John specifically, and even Paul and some of his writings, um, perhaps Luke, they have they have a prophecy of future events of things that are to come. Um, but you know when when we preach, when we profess truth in God's behalf, when we claim who God is, who the Bible says God is, we are we are prophesying. We're we're saying that, and I, I truly believe, believe that. Alright, verse 30 and 31. So they will produce portents both in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sunlight will be turned to darkness and the moon to the color of blood before the day of the Lord comes. That great and terrible day. So the Lord, of the, the day of the Lord is going to be a great and terrible day. So even in those days, there's still a look forward to the final judgment even in Peter's day and, and certainly here. Joel is talking about the looking forward even from from those days to the final days. Verse 32 says, It will so happen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Paul quotes that in Romans 10, the scripture that Aaron read earlier. Uh, but notice uh, who, is it, who it is that calls on the name of the Lord. It says, verse 32, it will, hap- it will so happen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who survive just as the Lord has promised. The remnant will be those who the Lord will call. So, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered, but those who will call in the name of the Lord are those that the Lord has called to call on him, for the those whom the Lord has called. So, this, uh, you know, we're familiar with the quotation in Romans, you know, it's part of the Romans Road and everything, uh, but I think unlike the original hearers, we're not as familiar with Joel. You know, the original hearers of Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. We're not as familiar with this quotation um, in in Joel as they are. It's God who calls and those whom he calls, he will call upon and those whom he calls, he, he calls upon for, sorry. It's God who calls and those whom he calls upon will call upon him for deliverance. So God calls and then those he calls Call to him for deliverance. Uh, all right, jump down to the end of chapter three, 17 through twenty-one. It says you will be convinced that I, the Lord, am your God. In the final in the final day, there will be no doubt that the Lord is God, dwelling on Zion and my holy mount. My dwelling on Zion, my holy mountain, Jerusalem will be holy. Conquering armies will no longer pass through it. So there will be no fear in the land. They're going to be in there. The the people of God. God's people are going to be in the land. No fear of conquering armies coming through. No, no fear of anything else because God is going to be dwelling on his holy mountain, dwelling on Zion. They're going to be there. No fear of any conquering armies coming through. 18. On that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the dry streams, all the dry stream breads of Judah will flow with water. A spring will flow out from the temple of the Lord, watering the valley of the acacia trees. So not only will God restore the essentials, but there's going to be dessert too. There's going to be not just wine, but it's going to be sweet wine. Uh, milk, water enough to even water the desert. So we have dessert and we have a watered desert here too. In verse 19, Egypt will be desolate and Eden will be a desolate wilderness because of the violence they, they did to the people of Judah and whose land shed innocent blood. So there's... To say that scholars debate is, you know, you say that for every verse, but there is discussion over this. Is this an actual event that Edom and Egypt are going to be desolate wilderness? Or is Joel using these countries as sort of just a general reference for Israel's enemies, for the people of God's enemies? Um, i I lean to the latter interpretation. I think this is just a general... All of God's enemies are going to be desolate, wiped out. That's 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 how I I view this. Verse twenty says, "But Judah will reside securely forever, and Jerusalem will be secure from one generation to the next. I will avenge their blood, so that I I will avenge their blood that I had not previously acquitted. It is the Lord who dwells in Zion." So, in the fi- last and final verse, I think it's perhaps the best reminder, the best encouragement we can have. And living in the error of the already but not yet, I think we can have confidence that the Lord who dwells—that sorry—that it is the Lord who dwells in Zion, it is God who dwells in Zion. The new creation, we have confidence that it's the Lord that is dwelling in Zion, He's there now, but He's definitely going to be there in the new creation, and all these things will come to pass. Um, he will have judged our enemies; He will have wiped them out and we have called upon the name of the Lord, as Joel says, then we will be restored and we will be living it up with God. And I think that's a, that's a good encouragement to know. It is the Lord who dwells in Zion. So I know that was a lot. Um, thanks for bearing with me. Probably will not do that again. <laughs> There's more than a chapter or so. Um, We'll break it up in a couple of different weeks, but uh, I think it's good to look at this big picture. Um, I've preached through jo- Jonah before and done that in a lot shorter time even reading all the scripture. Um, this was just a little bit more. So, Anyway, thanks for hanging with me. Um, love you guys. If y'all need anything from us, let us know. Um, keep praying for the people in Florida. I've been, I'm sure you too have seen this, but I've been seeing people that know people there that are saying oh these people's house got flooded they can never go back their life will never be the same and it's just that's one family of you know thousands and so um bare minimum they need our prayers that's an easy free thing to do <laughs> it, it costs us a little bit of time um, and obviously if if you feel the need to want to to give monetarily to anything there i'm sure you can seek that out ways to do that if you need help seeking that out i've, I've seen like I said lots of those kind of posts from people that know people and stuff that seems like worthy causes so um, there's several churches that are in that area um, that I know of the pastors in those places that you know we can I can reach out to if you need anything like that but anyway um, have a good week love you guys let's pray and then we will be dismissed can I, can I add a prayer yeah I guess, um could I read the yeah. Oh wow. Houston, okay. long stay down this weekend. Yeah. So I'm just praying that all that continues gotcha. to grow up here. Is that for better care or uh, it's a, it's a rehab? Awesome. For well, that's, that's pretty significant. He still has like, a very long road yeah. ahead of him, but it's like, specific yeah. for that. Gotcha. Well, that's a good thing, right? That's not like he's needing to go to a higher it's level a, of kale here like necessarily. Mother Francis has done great, Yeah. this, will be, like, this Better. is their specialty. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophet Joel. Even though we don't know much about him, May we know a little bit more about what he said, uh, what your message was through him. And I pray that we will remember um, to call out to you, to repent, to seek you for our salvation, and to... Uh, To know that your judgment is is very bad. It's far worse than we could ever imagine. But your salvation is far greater than we ever dreamed. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. I pray that we can be a people that live that out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.